We've been studying Hebrews 8 through 10 on Lord's Day is when we've observed the Lord's table for some time. I don't know how many Sundays I did not count the number of messages. But as we come to the end of Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 32, coming to the end of a section, this is a warning passage just previous, and then some exhortations, I would say some pastoral exhortations by the author to those that he is writing to. Remember the context of the book of Hebrews is, of course, the first century. It's written to those who were most likely, I think, based on the context, involved in participating in in terms of before they came to know and believe in Jesus, the system, the Old Testament system that was being practiced during the times of the New Testament. You look at the temple and its sacrifices, you look at the circumstances, and uh, you look at the book of Hebrews, and you find the writer here is calling these people to maintain their faith in what they had come to know about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ in the book of Hebrews is better. And of course, he's exalted as the son of God, God in the flesh, but he is better in terms of his fulfillment of the types of the Old Testament. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. His ministry is better than the ministry of Aaron as high priest, and of course, Jesus is the great high priest who has passed into the heavens. And as you look at Hebrews chapter 8 through 10, he has a better ministry. This is the new covenant ministry of the Lord Jesus. And the call is to draw near to God through Christ, to draw near to God through this high priest and also through his sacrifice. And so, the call even in this chapter, especially in verses 19 down through verse 25, is draw near. Uh, let us not only draw near, but let us hold fast and let us really help one another, I think you could say, based on the things that he says. And he gives them a warning in verse 26 of turning away. And he reminds them that if they turn away, there's nowhere else to go. Because Jesus Christ, of course, is the perfect high priest. He's also provided the perfect sacrifice. And to go away from that sacrifice, there's no sacrifice that can accomplish for them what his did. And so there's a call here in this chapter, a warning rather, against apostasy, which is coming to a knowledge, but then turning away from the knowledge of truth. There's a reference to that point at which they came to that knowledge of the truth here in verse 32, and I'll just start reading verse 32, but it's in the word enlightened. So these people had been enlightened. This is the same word that's used back in Hebrews chapter 6 when it describes apostasy and the danger of apostasy. Uh, it's also in the New American Standard translated enlightened there. But here he's talking to those who'd confess Christ. They'd come to the knowledge of Christ. 
And I think this is this word enlightened is a summary for, for, for that. We'll talk about that when we get to that point. But let's read through from verse 32 down through verse 39. The writer says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. There's a brief summary by one of the commentaries as I was studying this passage that I thought was helpful. Uh, and I say summary, it was more of an outline of the passage, but I, I, I think it was helpful to me at least to keep this in mind as I was looking at it. And it was simple. As in the past, so in the present. As in the past, so in the present. Now, that doesn't spell everything out, but in verse 32, you have there, uh, excuse me, verse 32, but remember... And there's some things to remember. That's the past. And then verse 35, now the present. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. And there's a focus on what is present as the passage continues and comes to conclusion in verse 39. As in the past, so in the present. A call to remember, first of all. And in light of that remembrance, a call to continued endurance and faith. What you have here in verses 32 down through verse 39 is what I call an encouragement to Christian endurance. It's not the only one in God's word, but it is here. The paralleled circumstances here between the passage and the early church is clear. It may not be clear for you or for me if we haven't been through these kinds of things. That being said, we're still called to endure. We're called to endure as Christians to continue to persevere and exercise faith. And so let's first of all look at this call to remember, starting in verse 32. But remember... The former days when after being enlightened. So the former days have a marking point. That marking point is at a point in time after you were enlightened. What happened? And I believe what he's talking about here is that the gospel of Christ had been made known to them and they had come to confess it. What does it mean to be enlightened? The Holy Spirit convicts of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. That's his ministry in this world, according to the Lord Jesus in John 14 through 16. And as he does, 
convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment in the preaching of the gospel, he convicted these people of their sin, of God's righteousness, and judgment that was coming so that they might flee from that judgment and find refuge in Christ. After you come to a knowledge of your own sinfulness and an awareness of judgment and the wrath of Almighty God, the law, the conviction of sin, the transgression of the law, is that tutor that leads someone to Christ. And in terms of these people, these Jews, certainly they had the scriptures. They had all the types, they had the promises, they had the teaching even of Isaiah 53, and then, of course, Christ in the flesh as he taught, and then the apostles who were preaching the gospel. And as they had come to know and understand who Jesus was as the suffering servant, the one who laid down his life as a sacrifice for sins, they're enlightened about the truth. They're enlightened about the righteous one. They're enlightened about the way of salvation. God is granting to them the light of Christ. And so they are enlightened. And in the very least, they profess to believe and have been following Christ even until now. They're listening to this letter. They're hearing this letter. They're feeling the exhortations. But as they came to Christ, their experience was no walk in the park. I don't know about you, but in terms of Christian experience, when someone comes to Christ, there's depending on the context, there can be a very strong reaction to those who come to Christ. The way that the writer describes it here, look at what he says in the end of the verse, is a great conflict of sufferings. This is what they came to experience. And so this call to remember is a call to remember a time when they went through very early on when there was a great contest or a conflict of sufferings. And they're not only to remember that, they're also to remember what they did during that. They're to remember that they endured that. Notice what he says. Remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. And they might think more in terms of the conflict but he wants them to remember not only the conflict, but also the endurance through it. The word that's translated conflict there in verse 32 is a word from which we get our word athletic or athletics. The idea is a contest that takes place between two or more opposing individuals or teams. So when that goes on, Perhaps you watched a contest over the weekend, a struggle back and forth for a period of time. There was a definite period of time that these people, these Hebrews, had gone through, and there was a great struggle. This word could even be used to describe combat in ancient Greek literature, like when the gladiators might have fought one another for sport. But this is opposition that they faced. This is the contest that they faced. And it was when they came to Christ. It says after they were enlightened, they came to this point where they went through this contest or this conflict. And if you were to compare this with other places in the scripture, certainly in the book of Acts, you find people coming to Christ and immediately you find 
conflict taking place. Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians. I just asked you to turn over there briefly to see how he describes the Thessalonians as they came to Christ and what happened. 1 Thessalonians and chapter 1, he makes reference to it. Verse 6, I'll start in verse 5, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators, imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And it's particularly that phrase, in much tribulation, they received the word in much tribulation. Turn over to chapter 3 for a moment. Paul is writing because he's at a distance from the Thessalonians. He's concerned about the Thessalonians to see whether their faith has continued. He sends Timothy, verse 2. It says, we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we've been destined for this. And that's quite a statement. We have been destined for this, afflictions. Verse 4, for indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, I could, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith so, uh, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would have been in vain. So what is, what is Paul concerned about when it comes to the Thessalonians and this time of affliction that they have gone through? He's concerned about their faith. Now he's writing to commend them and of course finds out from Timothy that they were doing well, but he's writing to give them some guidance and to know about their faith. He sent Timothy, but did you notice that when he said we were destined for this? Another word would be, we were appointed for this. Difficulty, trouble, conflict, suffering. If I could put it simply, coming to Christ doesn't mean everything's going to be okay. Right? You can't tell that to the people in the book of Acts who, when they came to Christ, had things happen like are described in this chapter. Does Jesus make everything better? Well, certainly he forgives your sins. And certainly you have a home in heaven, but this world is no friend to grace. You'll find opposition, sometimes even within your own family. With some people, they're disowned by their family. With others, their friends reject them. And we should not be surprised if there are troubles in the path when we follow Christ. He told us as much. Jesus said in his call to discipleship to pick up a cross. If you're going to follow Christ. You're going to walk in that same path. You have to remember where that path went for Christ. It went right to a cross. And as his disciples followed him, of course, most of them also met their death in following Christ. So you look at the first century church, and there's all kinds of trouble and difficulty for confessing Christ. And so this conflict of sufferings that they went through was not unusual. But here's what he's calling attention to. You endured that. You went through that. Remember that. 
Remember when things were hard, you actually made it through. But it wasn't just that general idea of suffering. He gets more specific as he goes into verse 33 and says, partly and partly. There's a couple other more specific ways that he describes what they've been through. So verse 33, he says, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. Word spectacle, I believe the word is, the root of that is the word from which we get our word theater. So this is the idea of suffering while others are looking on. You're made a spectacle. I think the King James word was gazing stock, which if you think about someone who's in stocks, they're not in stocks in a closet or in some room. They're actually in the center of town with their hands and their feet in the stocks, maybe their head as well. And it's partly the public nature of that that is part of the pain. This group of people had become, notice it says, partly by being made. So he's talking about them. He's talking about what they went through. And then it has the words through reproaches and tribulations. The idea of reproaches is insults, disgrace, publicly so, and then tribulations is trouble. Affliction would be another word. Distress, significant adversity. Someone described that idea of tribulation as going through an oppressed, oppressive state of physical, mental, social, or economic adversity. And based on what you see in this passage, it seems to be, you can imagine it would be all of those. So yes, a contest of sufferings. And even publicly so, as they were publicly disgraced and they went through difficulties as others were looking on. And what are the forces at work? Of course, these are Christ haters. Not only Christ deniers, but Christ haters. They didn't want to follow Jesus. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. And so even the followers of Jesus, as they came to believe in Christ, they didn't have Jesus to persecute. So these people were the closest thing. And that's, of course, what they did. And again, this shouldn't be a surprise. They mocked Jesus' words. They mocked his claims. On the cross, they mocked his prayers. They put a crown on him, but it was a crown of thorns. Even Christ, Paul says in Romans 15, did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So what Christ went through, he was suffering disgrace and insults and it's no surprise that his followers would the same. Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, know, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. And how does the world hate or why does the world hate? That same passage, Jesus says the reason that the world hates you is so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. And what's the scripture? It's the psalmist says, they hated me without a cause. There was no good reason that they hated him other than their own sinfulness and wickedness. As we reflect on the Lord today, as we think about the Lord's table and what he's done for us, yes, we may go through suffering, a conflict of suffering. We may suffer disgrace, 
we may be reproached, we may go through trouble, but do we ever go through anything like he went through? Spurgeon in a sermon called, Is It Nothing to You? said a dethroned monarch is always the object of compassion. And a once famous general sitting at the city gate and begging for a penny of every travel that passes by has been in all ages spoken of as a person to be deeply pitied. Well, what shall I say of him who stood as the center of angelic hosts, the prince of the kings of the earth? Aside, he flung his most divine array. He girded himself with garments of this flesh and blood and then became a man among men and for men, only to be despised of men. Being here among his own, his own received him not. Instead of receiving him, they dragged him to the judgment hall. They scourged him. They took him into the common hall of soldiery. They spat in his face. They blindfolded him. They buffeted him. They mocked all his holy offices. They put an old soldier's cloak about him and brought him out and cried, Behold the man. They nailed him to the cross and then stood there and said, If he be the Christ, let him come down. They punned upon his prayers. And when he said, Eloi, Eloi, they said he called for Elias. Nothing that shame could invent, they spared him. And all this was poured on one whose feet honored the ground they trod upon, the glances of whose eyes were the angel's law, the words of whose mouth were the music of God's ear. He was despised and rejected of men, even he who was and is the King of kings and Lord of lords. So if they did that to our master, and our Lord. What are they going to do to us? If we live godly in Christ Jesus, we will suffer persecution. And maybe that's part of the problem. That our lives are not Christ-like enough. That we're just too worldly to be distinguished from the world. Even though we confess the name of Christ. This group of people that's going through and what is being described here, what they've gone through, their major confession was that Jesus was the Messiah. They were willing to accept and follow his teachings, and they're suffering for it. But of course, throughout the book of Acts, we see their testimony. At least we see the testimony of the early Christians that they lived like Christ. They even were called Christians, little Christs. And that's not all they went through. It's not just being a public spectacle. It's not just the insults and disgrace and the trouble. But notice the end of verse 33. It says, partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. So his call to remembrance here is remember that you endured. You endured that time when you were made a public spectacle, but you also endured a time when it was also difficult because you saw others who with you were following Christ, and they were treated in the same way. So this is the other side of the partly. Partly this, and now partly that. Now what is this? This is the other aspect of their suffering. Not only did they have to go through it themselves, but they had to watch, they had to see the spectacle of others. And it's hard to watch others that we love suffer. You ever watch someone you love suffer? 
Maybe you see that from day to day with someone in your life. Some of you have watched someone in your life suffer. And it's hard. And the case here is not only suffering physically or in some other way, it's actually suffering for the sake of Christ. Have you seen that? Someone who's being mistreated or falsely accused, lied about for the sake of Christ. This is what they were seeing. They were watching those that they loved. There was a day when John Rogers, who was a companion of Tyndale, William Tyndale and Miles Coverdale, he had preached the gospel. He had continued even under Bloody Mary when she came to the throne. And because of her Roman Catholic commitments, she was seeking to arrest and persecute all those who were preaching what the Bible teaches. And so Rogers was eventually taken because he was preaching and convinced of what the Bible taught. And so on February 4th, 1555, a Monday morning, he was told to prepare himself for the fire at Smithfield. He went, was able to ask someone if he could speak to his wife. And there's a, an account of his last moments, that last day as he is headed towards Smithfield, singing a psalm on the way. People around rejoicing, but looking on at his suffering. And then his wife, with their 11 children, came and met him along the way to see what daddy was going through. One of those children still nursing. And they had to watch that day as he was burned to ashes bathed his hands in the flames, suffering for the gospel. We look at the New Testament. We actually look at the details in the book of Acts and the things that Paul says. Paul says he gave his voice towards those who were being put to death. There's, of course, imprisonments. There's beatings. He's going to come to that here in this passage in just a moment. Realize that the New Testament is in the context of Christ, of course, being identified as the Messiah, Jesus being identified as the Messiah, but his followers suffering for their belief and confession of him. And suffering not only personally, but also suffering watching those that they love go through what they went through. And if you've ever been in that situation where someone else is in pain, sometimes you would say to them, I wish I could go through this for you. Because it's so painful to look on and watch. I remember the day when someone told me that watching someone they loved go through significant difficulty and pain due to a disease was the reason they became bitter at God and doubted the truth and eventually turned away. That's no small thing. But I think 
as we deal with that, as they would have dealt with it, certainly they would have been helped when Paul eventually came to Christ. And eventually that story is told that no one else was witness to on the road to Damascus when Paul is confronted and he's been persecuting the church. And who are you, Lord, he says. And then we have these words recorded for us to help us not only understand that Christ was opposing Paul, but remember what he said? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus is in heaven. How could he be being persecuted? Because his people on earth, those who had confessed his name, with whom he has an infinite union or an eternal union, through Christ, through the gospel, through faith in Christ, they become identified with him. They are part of his body. And when they suffer, he suffers. That's something to remember. Even if he permits the suffering, remember how he confronted Paul. And what he said to Paul. And if you should go through something, if someone else should go through something for the sake of Christ. Remember, Christ is looking on and Christ is the perfect and final judge. And even if he permits someone to go through a time like that, Lamentations tells us about the character of our God. The Lord will not reject forever, for if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness, for he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. But now may be the time of suffering, now may be the time of affliction, now may be the time where we're going through in this life, filling up, as Paul said in one place, the sufferings of Christ. But this momentary light affliction is what? Can it even be compared with that eternal weight of glory that God is going to grant to us? These people became sharers with those who were treated just like they were, verse 33. But then verse 34, it says, for you showed sympathy. So, they were sharers. They had gone through this themselves. They had endured that. In verse 34, it says that even in the midst of enduring that, they're willing to act on, act out in love, certainly consistent with the teaching of Christ, love one another. Verse 34, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your own property, of your property. So here's an element of their suffering that they're going through. They're watching people be imprisoned, and they showed sympathy to them. And they're having their properties seized, and they're okay with it. In fact, they're joyful about it. Not joyful that the stuff is taken or that the land is taken, but joyful about their, their confidence in eternal values that kept them from grasping on or holding on to these things that were not as important. What are we talking about here? Well, aside from the prisoners, again, you look at the context of the book of Acts, the New Testament, there are many people in prison for their faith. Believers, Acts chapter 8, verse 3, individual apostles, all the apostles at one time, Paul and Silas eventually. Paul talks about being in prison often. He says in far more imprisonments. Even at the end of the book of Hebrews, it's Timothy who has recently been released. So this is a time when people are being imprisoned for their faith, and they're also having their possessions taken away. 
because of their faith in Christ. Verse 34, accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. The word for property here is the same one in the narrative of the rich young ruler when Jesus told him to go and sell all of his possessions and give to the poor and come and follow him. That's Matthew 19. Now, when you think of possessions, you may not think of land, but in terms of the word that's being used there and the context there, as it further describes the rich young ruler, the reason he went away sorrowful is because he had a lot of land. And he didn't want to give all that away. That's what Christ was calling to. Christ was calling him to value following Christ more than any of his stuff, including that which he seems to have held most dear, all this land. Now, how did these believers go through that time when they had things seized and taken away? They accepted it. And it wasn't, oh, well... It's actually accepting it joyfully, knowing that they had something better in the place of it. What's the first response when a toy is taken away from a child? Right, And they want that toy. There's going to be a visceral reaction there, right? What happens when our stuff is taken away? How do we respond to that? It helps us to see how much we value that. And if in God's providence, something is taken away from us, in the case of these believers, it was through actual seizure. It was persecution that resulted in them losing their possessions. They accepted it joyfully. Do we have that kind of eternal perspective about temporal things? I was in a store last night, jam-packed with all kinds of merchandise. I mean, they are ready for the onslaught of shoppers. Every package, right? Every Everything you can buy is comes with the supposed promise that happiness is going to be achieved or the happiness of someone else is going to be achieved if I just give this to them. Are we going to believe that lie? Are we going to believe that lie? That stuff is where it's at? That the things of this life are what are most valuable? No, we have a better possession than anything we could have in this world ahead of us. If something gets taken away from us and we value it, It very well could be that the Lord is just removing something that either could be an idol or is an idol in our lives. Now, obviously, we have stuff, but we need to hold loosely onto it so that if the Lord should take it away for one reason or another, that's not the end of the world. What is that better possession and a lasting one, verse 34. Because this is what they knew. They had endured through that time. They had gone through suffering. And in verse 34, at the end of the verse, it's part of their Christian knowledge 
that they had a better possession and a lasting one, something that they knew in the future would be theirs. What's he talking about? I believe he's talking about the end of their salvation, the inheritance that is ahead of us, the imperishable, undefiled, reserved in heaven for you kind of inheritance. Full salvation in an eternal city, living with God himself, experiencing eternal fellowship with all the saints of all the ages and the angels, participating in an eternal reign with Christ over his new creation, possessing eternal glory given to us by God himself, and always enjoying his presence. P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E. -E -E. I felt like I needed to spell that out in light of the illustration I just gave. Right? It's not, it's not the streets of gold. It's not the gates of pearl. That's part of the picture that God gives to us to help us to value it. But what do you value the most? I mean, that city filled with saints and angels worshiping the Lamb the Lamb himself, Christ himself, God himself. That's my inheritance. The things in this world, in comparison, I, can, I, I can't even compare those things. They're not worthy even to compare. And yes, God will, with Christ, give us what we need. Even in that age, when we come to know him face to face, praise the Lord that the one who sent his son into this world to give us salvation through his death upon the cross, his resurrection. What does Paul say in Romans chapter eight? How shall he not with him? If he didn't withhold Christ, he will freely give us all things in Christ. But as he gives us all things in Christ, we're not going to value all those things that are a part of that time more than we would value him and fellowship with him. This is the inheritance that these people are expecting. And what he's saying is you endured that suffering. You went through those different aspects of suffering. You even had prisoners that you cared about who were in prison for a time, maybe even continuing to this time, but then also you had your stuff taken away, but that wasn't very important to you because because you knew that you had a better and lasting possession in eternity forever. So can you see why he follows all of that up in the next verse, verse 35, with a therefore? In light of the fact that you have endured, you've gone through all of that, you experienced sympathy and love towards those prisoners. You joyfully accepted the seizure of your property. Don't throw away what's obviously your confidence. I mean, you'd have to be confident in the truth to go through all that you went through. After you were enlightened, that was your experience. So remember that. Don't throw that away. And what we have here, I think, in the rest of the chapter, the rest of these verses here, is a call to endurance in faith. So there's a call to remember, 
but now there's a call to endure in that same faith. Don't cast away your confidence. Keep what you have and hold it fast. Verse 35, therefore, in light of all of that that you have done in the past, now do not throw away your confidence. Keep it. Hold fast to it. What is this confidence? One writer, A.W. Pink, writes, it's not so much faith itself as one of the products or fruits thereof. It's closer akin to hope. It is that effect of faith which fits the Christian for freedom and readiness unto all his spiritual duties, notwithstanding difficulties and discouragements. It's that frame of spirit which carries us cheerfully through all those sufferings which a real profession of the gospel entails. And then he says, more specifically, this confidence may be defined as a fortitude of mind, courage of heart, and constancy of will. It's endurance. It's, it's continuing in that same frame of mind that they had before. And what is the promise of Hebrews 3, 6? Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. You know, when the devil attacks, what does he attack? He attacks your confidence. He casts doubts, fiery darts into your heart. What if this is not true? Does God really care for me? I, mean, I almost don't want to repeat them because we can tend to take those things very easily and think them, but the devil attacks our confidence. Sort of like when Titus was attacking Jerusalem near AD 70, and he's taking every escapee by virtue of his army. Whenever they escaped out of the city to go run for help, you know what he did with them? He crucified them. And he didn't just crucify them anywhere. He actually took them and put them in crosses surrounding the city of Jerusalem. He's crucifying the Jews who escaped. So when they looked over those walls and saw the Romans, they would also see those crucified Jews who tried to run for help. Talk about psychological warfare. I mean, you would doubt that you're going to make it out. If anybody who tried to get out, that's what happens to them. You know, the devil attacks our confidence in the truth. So how do we build up our confidence? If we don't want to have our confidence go down, if we don't want to experience, and I'm not saying we can perfectly go through this life without experiencing doubts, but if we want our confidence built up, what do we need? Well, we need the truth of God. We need the word of God. We need the people of God. We need the Spirit of God working through the Word of God and the people of God to strengthen us and build us up. Frankly, we need to be in God's house, if we can be. We don't really need to spend our time giving our attention to other things that have much less of a value. Don't forget that you have a faith that needs to be maintained. Faith grows weaker Faith grows stronger when you're not with God's people, when you're not hearing the word, what happens to your faith? And some of us could testify to that reality. I would also add singing, the truth of God in song. Songs that are going to 
build you up in the truth where you're meditating on the words, not just to the music, but you're actually thinking about the truth because the truth is what penetrates your mind and heart. And as you have those words set to some tune that ministers in a way to us, God, of course, created music. It ministers to us in a way that helps us to meditate, deepens our affection. So we don't really need Dean Martin's It's a Marshmallow World. Now, you might hear that song around this time of, you might like that song. I'm not trying to get all over your case. I'm just saying that whether you listen to that song or not, what we are to be doing as Christians is to fill our minds with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And you might say, well, I like that. Okay, fine. But what are you doing with the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? And by the way, when you make choices like whatever you listen to, are you doing it with discernment? You listen to a song all day long. What is that doing for your soul? What's it doing for your heart? Is it building you up? Is it helping you see the distinction between Christ and the world? Or is it making you think more about the world? And some of our choices, unfortunately, because we're sinners, when it comes to music, are not good. Because what actually attracts us to that music is not Christ. It's not his word. It's actually sensuality or worldliness. It's what it does for me. It's how I feel. Now, we need God's truth in our minds and hearts. Psalms, think about that content. Hymns, spiritual songs. Why do we, why do we spend time singing even in a service like this today and not just listen to preaching? Because music does something for us that preaching doesn't. Ministers to our affections in ways that preaching doesn't. Not that preaching can't also reach the affections. But here's the encouragement in verse 35. Do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. There's something ahead of us. Not only keep what you have and hold it fast, but keep your eyes on the reward ahead. As I was studying this idea of reward, we tend to think of a reward as something that we earn, something that we merit, something that after we go through a period of time, you know, we, we come to the end of that and then we're awarded, we're given something for what we've done. I don't think this is incompatible with the message of grace, the grace of salvation in God's word. I think we need to remember that salvation is by grace. Nevertheless, we have in scripture times where what is ahead of us is spoken of as a reward, such as chapter 11. It might be on the same page for you, verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And biblically speaking, and you can study this out, it's something that piqued my interest, and I want to study it further even after looking at this text, is that in Scripture, there are times where the reward spoken of is nothing that I've merited. God, for instance, says to Abraham, do not fear, Abram, I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. So what's his reward? Well, God came to Abraham on the basis of grace. Keep your eyes on that reward. What's the reward? Really, it's through faith, that full salvation, that inheritance that I have in Christ, given to me by grace. But I must persevere. 
And I'm not placing too much weight on that perseverance, although every true believer, I do believe, does persevere. We are preserved by God's power. We're kept by God's power. And in the end, we'll understand, I believe, when we stand before him, why am I here? Why am I even here? This is not me. This isn't anything that I could have earned. This is all what God has done for me in Christ. Yes, I believe, but God even granted me that faith. I exercised it, but he helped me. He used his word, his spirit, his people, and those means of God's grace to me helped me along the way, along with my fellow pilgrims, to wind up by his grace in his presence one day. So keep your eyes on that reward. Don't get your eyes on other things. Look at verse 36. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. They had need for endurance. That's what he calls them to. You did do that, verse 32. Now you just need more of it. You just need to keep on, by faith, persevering, enduring through this time. Whatever they're going through as he's writing, this also is a time for endurance. And then he says, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Again, another reference to what's ahead of them. So there's an encouragement here to keep on. And could I say to you, Christian, today, those of you that have confessed Christ, you've come to know Christ, you're, you're probably going through some difficulty right now. I don't know what it is. From time to time, I come to be aware of what people are going through. And it's a test of their faith or a trial of their faith. The biblical exhortation from James is to when you're going through a trial to consider that joy because God is working to complete you. He's working to perfect you. He's working to change you. In James chapter 1, verse 12, blessed, there's blessings for the one who overcomes, the one who actually endures and makes it through. Why? There's a crown of life, which the Lord has promised. See, again, it's looking ahead for those who, you know how that verse reads? Love him. You're actually exercising as you go through this trial, love for the Lord Jesus. As you hold fast to him, regardless of what you're going through. Keep on, Christian. Don't quit, Christian. Hold fast, Christian. And if those appeals, those exhortations you don't gravitate to or you don't even want to hear because you just want to give up, Remember that in the context of what he's talking about, he is talking about, in some cases, those who will veer off the path. They're only temporary confessors. A pastor by the name of Charles Overton talked about the character of the temporary. He was giving lectures on Pilgrim's Progress. And he was describing how Hopeful was talking to Christian and what Hopeful was telling Christian. He says, as Hopeful had descri fully described the reason of the temporary believer turning back to perdition, 
He says it was the turn of Christian to describe the way in which it is done. He did this, he says, in short and simple terms and well described the downward path by which a man passes from false profession to open apostasy. He begins by drawing off his attention from serious thoughts of death, judgment, and eternity. He neglects prayer, private prayer, and private duties. He then begins to avoid the company of lively and zealous Christians. Public duty then becomes a burden. After this, he proceeds to find fault with professors, that is, others who profess Christ, as if there was no sincerity or uprightness among them. Then he goes in the way of the wicked and profane, begins to trifle and play with little sins openly. Presumptuous offenses soon follow, which clearly show his real character. And unless a miracle of mercy prevent, he perishes everlastingly in his own deceivings. You see the path of the apostate? The horror at the end of that path? And that's what Charles Overton said as he concluded this. He says, oh, fatal and desperate process growing blacker and blacker until at last it terminates in the regions of blackness and darkness and despair forever and ever. Beware of such of beware of the first entrance upon such a path. Don't go that way. Instead, endure. I wish we had time. Verses 37, 38, and 39 come from Old Testament prophecies that have to do with the coming of judgment and the blessing for the one who lives by faith. Now, the writer here is doing something interesting because in verse 37, he may be alluding to Isaiah, but in verse 37, instead of describing a judgment who is coming, he refers to he who is coming, and it's in this context, it's Christ. And that word at the end of verse 37, he will not delay. I struggle with that because I was trying to understand. It seems like there has been a delay. But the point of what he's saying here is not that there won't be a, 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 an extent of time. It's that when it's the right time, he's not going to delay it any further as if he's doing something else that's unimportant. Because when it's due time, he's going to come. And when he comes, what will be important? It's the righteous one who lives by faith that he's coming to rescue. But for the one who shrinks back, verse 38, he says, my soul has no pleasure in him. And of course, that's the apostate. That's the one who turns away that God has no pleasure in. And you know what it's like? When you're watching, and, and please don't misunderstand me, I realize you might be imagining something. I'm not trying to not take pity on some racer, but somebody's running, and they keep on running. And you're, you're watching different people running. They're running in a race, and they're running, and someone just, they just stop, and they sit down, and they're done. They're just not going to finish. And then there's there's the one that's just, I mean, they're barely even running. It almost looks like a, a walk. But they're just not giving up. They look exhausted. It's like this woman who was finishing the marathon in Los Angeles. I believe it was 
1984 Olympics and she comes into the stadium and she literally looks bent over. There's pictures of this. But she keeps on going. And they even made a rule. I understand that they made a rule about medical care being able to be received at a point when someone needed to be able to finish the race based on that situation. You know, sometimes we need care. We need help. But could I encourage you, don't quit. And if you need help, get help. If I was to ask, I'm not going to do it, but if I was to ask, would you be willing to help a fellow Christian who's in need of prayer and encouragement? Would you do that? I'm seeing some heads shake. I didn't ask for raising hands, but that's the spirit. That's the spirit within the church. If we know and love Christ. May the Lord help us to live by faith, to continue to endure by faith. And there's just a word of, you might call it a pastoral encouragement here at the end, a pastoral vote of confidence, you might say, because in verse 39, he says, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. That's not us. We're not like that. And why are we not like that? Certainly because of the Lord. It's not us. It's not in us. It's it's in the power of God in our lives. But we're not we're not, we're not of those who shrink back to destruction. We are of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. That's that pastoral vote of confidence that kind of comes alongside. Hey, hey, we're not going to quit. We're not going to quit. Let's keep on going. Let's keep on going. And that let's includes the person here who's coming alongside because you come alongside someone, but this person needs help too. Do you need help on your path to heaven? Well, we're here today. We're together. We're not apart. We're not just reading our Bibles at our homes. There's something about what God is doing in the church for his own glory. It gives testimony to who he is, but it also connects us with one another, and we need each other. It's humbling, isn't it? You need you need other people. And I would say you you and I need more than we think we do. Don't go it alone. Don't go it alone. And may the Lord help us to keep on believing, trusting, enduring with faith, as he says in verse 39. What's the end of that? Well, the end of shrinking back is the destruction. The end of having faith is to the preserving of the soul, the salvation, full salvation. Let's keep on going in Christ with his help, his spirit, his word, his people. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and its encouragement. And we pray that we would receive this encouragement today, that we would take it 
and as we look at our own life, and also that we would take it and as we look at the lives of our fellow believers, that we would pray for one another, that we would build up and encourage one another. Help us to help one another on our pilgrimage to glory. We know that you have called us in your word strangers, pilgrims, foreigners in this wicked world. Help us to live as such. We pray in Jesus' name.